Welcome back to the Blast From Our Past podcast, where we talk about nostalgic TV and film from our days, and then also recast shows or movies using current actors. It all stemmed from our love of TV and film when we were kids, and we just kind of wanted to rewatch them and see if they hold up. Today, we've got a New York double feature talking about Newsies, and then also the animated show Gargoyles, both from Walt Disney Pictures. So we'll go ahead and get started. I'm Adam. I'm John. And today we have a special guest, our sister. I'm Abby. Hey, hey. Thank you for joining us, Abby. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am a veterinarian and I'm living in Virginia right now. So on the East Coast, away from both of my brothers. Yes, we are all fairly far apart and none of us grew up in any of the cities that we now live in. Nope. Yeah. Has nothing to do with any of this, but that's that. So yeah, we wanted to get Abby's take uh, and have her join us because Newsies was a movie that Abby and I in particularly really bonded over as kids. Definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, it's one that even though... We fought a lot as kids, uh, my sister and I. (laughs) This was a movie that if it was on, we would start singing the songs together. It would instantly have a bond of friendship where normally we would be punching and kicking. (laughs) And still have a love for it because we just recently, what, last year, saw the Broadway. Yeah. It was such a strong movie in our past that you flew out across the country to go to the live action musical with me. And we still sung every song together. Yes, we did. And I will say I have not seen the musical. And even though I don't have as strong a connection to the movie, I did very much like it at the time when it came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I definitely did enjoy it. So it is definitely something that all three of us enjoyed as kids, but particularly you two really bonded over, which I think was a great thing because it was a little tumultuous there for a while between the two of you. (laughs) We needed something to bond us together. Yes, we definitely did. (laughs) All right. So uh, we'll just go ahead and get started with our review of Newsies. It came out in 1992. It was set around The turn of the century, 1899, I believe. Newsies is directed by Kenny Ortega, who is a fantastic musical director and choreographer. He was the choreographer for Footloose. He also worked on Hocus Pocus and High School Musical. And he was the choreographer of things like Ferris Bueller, like those big dance scenes that they had in in Ferris Bueller. So Kenny Ortega has done a bunch of stuff uh, and it stars... Famously, Christian Bale as uh, Jack Kelly, Bill Pullman, and Robert Duvall are two other names of note. So the movie starts off by a narration from Racetrack, who actually sings the very first line of the first song in the movie. And the Newsies are kind of like a, a ragged army of kids, and they're just, they need a leader, and they need a cause. And so that's just kind of the the exposition that we get from the narration. But Adam, what is a Newsie? What is a Newsie? Oh, good <laughs> question. A Newsie is a newspaper boy who earns his living selling newspapers on the streets. Newspaper? What is that? That's a good question, John. News Newspaper is an ancient piece of old paper created from trees that you used to print words on and actually read from it. Yeah, we don't have those anymore. (laughs) Yeah, very seldom. You find them, but I know very few people who actually read them. Yep. Not the younger generation, that's for sure. Yes. (laughs) No. So the movie kind of gets started a little into the boarding house and we start meeting some of the newsies including a person they call cowboy who is jack kelly a good-looking outspoken guy from the start that you kind of immediately fall in love with definitely the leader you can tell yeah for sure without question 
Yeah, and we kind of get our first song very quick. We get uh, Carrie and the Banner is the first song. All the kids are kind of waking up, getting ready for the day. They said Racetrack is the first kid we hear from, the uh, first kid that we, who starts singing. That's my cigar. You'll steal another. Hey! Hey, bummers, we got work to do. Since when did you become me, mother? I stop ya bawling. Hey. <laughs> who asked you? You've got to love the almost overdone New York accent. To some people, it might seem cheesy. I actually think it helps the movie. Oh, yeah. For sure. Hard New York accents. And even Christian Bale, who's a big time Englishman, does a pretty good job of speaking New York. And misspeaking words, too. Speaking them incorrectly. Yes. I will probably not say papers or newspapers. It's papes. Papes. That's what they said in the movie. Yeah. And so you got to sell papes. So, but that's kind of uh, what leads the way at the beginning is it's all about selling papes and carrying the banner and getting things ready for your free open life as a kid. The good old days. The, the good old days when a 16-year-old boy could just walk onto the streets and sell papers and earn a living. <laughs> Yeah, damn child labor laws ruined this country. I know. Uh, How old was Christian Bale in this movie? <laughs> Around 18, I think, is what it seemed like. Yeah. So Christian Bale is obviously the leader of the group, and we kind of get the carry and the banner going. And to me, it was pretty obvious that Christian Bale is maybe the least qualified dancer of all <laughs> If you watch him specifically while like the whole groups are doing stuff, he's just slightly off or just not as strong as some of the other guys. Which is funny that he then has a solo. Yeah, and it's it becomes very apparent that he's not at the top tier dance quality at that one. But also similar made me think of Footloose. So mm. the fact that it's the same choreographer, mm -hmm. because in Footloose, he also had this awkward solo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was apparently reported, I don't know how true it was, at the time that he was making this, he was actually kind of embarrassed that he was recording a musical. And so he never told any of his friends that the movie he was shooting was a musical. And I don't know if that really played into it, but I mean... Yeah. You I've heard that even today he's fairly ashamed of his of his part in Newsies. Oh, so sad. It's my favorite yeah. movie of his. <laughs> but within Carrying the Banner, a part that I think only gets better as you get older is kind of the section where the nuns start singing. They're giving out food to all the, the Newsies. And a part that I loved as a kid because her voice was so good was the mother, yeah. who the standout vocal, it's just a gorgeous voice. I probably didn't really realize until I was in college and watched this movie that she's looking for her son that ran away yeah. and she just wants to see her son again and she misses him and like I didn't get that I was just like oh pretty voice as a yeah. kid but now I'm like 
oh, fuck, that's a little bit darker that these kids are all just like runaways and they either like hate their families and all this other stuff. And like it didn't click as well for me when I was younger, but now there's adds a little bit of depth to it. And particularly yeah. it's her singing that really pulls that out. Yeah, it definitely was a, a scene that, at, well, for me at least, and probably because I didn't think about it that deeply, at the time it just seemed weird mm-hmm. that, oh, all of a sudden nuns, I mean, they're feeding the kids, but it just seemed like a weird scene. Now, of course, it does seem very poignant. Mm-hmm. And with historical context, you really kind of understand where it's coming from. And it does add a lot to the scene. We don't see that mother again, do we? No. No, we don't see the mother. The storyline never comes back, but it's just a small little thing that adds a lot to it. Yes. So we finish that song. We kind of get going into, we're starting the paper business, getting it started. We're heading over to the distribution center, basically, Mr. Wiesel's distribution center. There's no good paper headlines today. Uh, we meet kind of the dumb villains of it, the Del- the Delancey brothers. <laughs> With Mr. Weasel. Mr. Weisel. I, uh, I will say the first time we meet Mr. Weisel, I kind of feel bad for him now. Yeah. Because Jack's a complete dick to him. Yeah. Like he <laughs> calls him by the wrong name. He calls him I Weasel. I mean, but he's just Weasel. He, he's just trying to do his job. <laughs> like Sell papers. Yeah. You know, he's just trying to sell papers and do that. But Jack's a complete asshole. I don't have any context of it. And so as a kid, you're like, oh, yeah, this guy's mean. But now I'm like, no, Jack's the one Jack- who's mean. <laughs> I mean, and he does prove to not be a nice guy later, and maybe that's the side we don't see ahead of time. But yeah, without any context, it does make it look like Jack is the bad guy in that situation. Yeah, I mean, but to a whole bunch of kids, it comes across that, you know, Jack's the cool guy. He can yeah. make fun of the higher-ups and still get away with it. So that's, I guess, what it's establishing with the kids. I thought he was cool. <laughs> Uh, we kind of meet David and Les right when we get there. David is a kind of a, a new newsy, if you will, coming into town. He's not really from the boarding house. None of them really, none of the kids know him. And a fun, just a fun little scene of Jack trying to con him, basically. You kind of see another more foreshadowing that Jack's not particularly a nice guy where he's conning David and Les into buying more papers and then becoming a selling team and splitting the profits, obviously, in Jack's favor. David's played by uh, a guy who, coincidentally, his name is also David, David Maskow. And do you know what he's most famous for? Was he in That Thing You Do? No, but he was in a Tom Hanks movie. He was in Big. He was in Big. Oh, that's right. He was the, he was the little kid. He was the young Tom Hanks. Yep. So Jack becomes friends, if you will, with David and Les to sell extra papers. And we really find out and we learn more about David that he is like the clean kid, the honest, good kid. Now we kind of have our two main protagonists of the story being Jack and David. We then cut to Mr. Joseph Pulitzer. He was scary to me. Fantastically played by Robert Duvall. Yes. Robert Duvall, he takes it over the top. He's a little much. Like he gets into these some of these weird sounds and like the way he presents himself is kind of crazier than a regular person would but i guess he's trying to play like an eccentric if you were trying to play you know a massive powerful business owner being an eccentric i think would make sense so right yeah but he does a great job it's disney so far everything we've seen has been a little over the top you know the accents are a little over the top the dancing is a little over the top it makes sense it goes with the style and the flow so far yep so and basically what we find out from just that little scene is pulitzer is in a newspaper war with william randolph hearst and he wants more money 
basically. He wants to try and beat Hearst, and so how can he get more money? One thing, a line that I don't want to skip over is one I think that they use the world, which is the newspaper that the newsies are selling, or that our newsies that we're following are selling. And Pulitzer and other people use the term world as double meanings. Oh, yeah. And so they have a line that starts, when I created the world. Yeah. And it just, it's... (laughs) funny because to him it means creating the entire world because it is his world and then in a smaller sense the world being just the paper just Mm -hmm. good writing uh good delivery from the directors i i enjoy that yeah so some a little bit of setup that pulitzer needs more money the rich want to get richer we then cut to a boxing match jack and David and Les are all trying to sell their papes there. They're just having a good time. We learn a little bit more about Jack. He's talking about improving the truth. It's He's not lying when he's selling papers and telling customers about different headlines, but he's improving the truth. So it kind of is even further set up that Jack is a bit of a liar. Jack's a bit of a deviant. And, you know, it's, it's hard to really trust him, even though as a kid, you immediately trust him because, like I said, he's good looking. He, he seems like the cool guy. But when you're really trying to dissect the character, he is someone who's a bit nefarious, a little bit untrustworthy. Yeah, but at the same time, you can almost excuse it because it is, if you think about the time, it's 1899. These kids are essentially orphaned. If not orphaned, they're runaways. They're trying to survive in a world that probably just doesn't care. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I still love him. Whatever he's got to do to make his living is what he's going to do. He's just that kind of guy. But I feel like it just does a little bit more setup of, will Jack be a good guy the entire movie? So then we're still at the boxing match and... I love that little scene where the old guy is walking uh, and he's <laughs> doing the sign instead of the hot girls yep. that they do nowadays. Yeah. But he's got round round 58 little joke that, you know, boxing matches would just go on forever. <laughs> it's just I just find that funny. I laughed at that every single time when he's the one. <laughs> Worst ring girl this. ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're at that spot and we see this guy who is obviously the villain of the movie or a villain of the movie. He's like wearing all black. He looks evil. We find out that he knows Jack and he's calling him Sullivan for some reason. And he wants to take him back to the refuge. And we're like, what the fuck does that mean? But it also just kind of ties in like, you know, Jack's a bit of a liar. We have no idea because Jack knows what he's talking about, but he wants to just bolt. They run away from him. So just kind of set up uh, just a light little setup of who is this guy who's obviously a bad guy? Who is the real Jack? We don't know, but we don't have time to, to deal with it right now. Yeah. We then stop at Meta, who is a character I've always hated and I still hate. <laughs> I think Meta... I think Meta can be cut out of the movie completely, and I would be happier for it. Her songs are the worst songs in the entire movie. I didn't like her as a kid either. And even <laughs> as an adult, I mean, I, th- I think I do like her better as an adult, but watching it as, as a kid, I didn't, I didn't understand what the purpose was. It didn't. Yeah. She didn't need to be there for me. <laughs> yeah. No, she, she also had a, a weird, it felt like a weird relationship with Jack. Yeah. Like, I it just... I'm like, what is going on between Slightly those two? Slightly motherly, but yet not. Uh, a little bit more motherly. Yet not, not, not quite motherly. Not motherly. <laughs> so she does her first song. I love you, baby. I for you. Don't love that song. And we find out a little bit that Jack says his parents are out west, looking for a place to live out west. Okay, sure. We'll believe it. <laughs> We move on. They go to David's place and 
we meet David's family, and so we just learned that Jack's parents are gone and not around, and now we get a, a loving little family, really seriously, mother, father, and two and a half kids with less. <laughs> that like they're the perfect little American family. Perfect family. Yeah. Even though we do find out that the father fell on some hard times and hurt himself at his job, and because there was no union, he can't work, and that's why David, who was going to school, is now becoming a newsboy, trying to earn some money that way. And a sweet family. I mean, everyone oh, yeah. is very nice. They take Jack in for dinner. and Yeah, they're all great people. We see that there's a little sexual tension between Jack and the sister. So we have an obvious love interest as well. Right. Which I'm going to contest. If you'd taken that out of the movie, would have done nothing to change the movie. I agree. It's unnecessary rewatching it. Yeah. Except for the scene in the streets when he goes to, when he runs to save her. Yeah, but it, it could have been him saving less too. True. Yeah, I mean, yeah, could, yeah, because he was saving David and Les at the same time, basically. So I, I thought the love interest brought a little bit to the story. It brought some Disney to the story, that's for sure. <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. All right. <laughs> I'm a romantic, though. But yeah, with meeting the family and particularly meeting the dad, what we really find out is like the movie's really about unions and <laughs> protecting protecting workers' rights. <laughs> Yeah. That's kind of the basis of the film. And this just further uh, adds to that. So Jack heads out and he sings Santa Fe. When I dream on my own, I'm alone, but I ain't lonely. For a dream of night's the only time of day. When the city's finally sleeping, all my thoughts begin to stray. And I'm on the train that's bound for Santa Fe. As a kid... Not my favorite. Yeah, one of my least favorites of yeah. the Newsies songs. And it, and it came with the very awkward solo. I liked it a little bit better nowadays. Yeah. Like, rewatching it now, I, I thought it was a good song. Now, I do think Christian Bale is obviously one of the weaker singers and one of the weaker dancers and this is really how it you highlights that, that. yeah <laughs> it's high yes it highlights that i can say and I'll, I'll say this too as a kid wasn't my favorite song didn't do much for me as an adult and as a musician i actually kind of like it now okay even even with the slightly wavery voice and honestly the dancing doesn't bother me so much his voice didn't bother me i thought he sang it pretty well he sounded okay but he's i think still the weakest singer sure of the group. Yeah. Yeah. And to have a solo is, you know. But it's kind of a pretty song. It is. It, I like the song. Exactly. It's sad. Yeah. We're listening to it now. You get, I get more out of it. Yeah. And it kind of, you know, I, agree. I mean, Jack's really a lonely guy. That's kind of what you get from this. Yeah. He just wants out. He wants to go to Santa Fe where he can accomplish his dreams. He can move on from this slum that he feels he is in, in New York. We cut back to Pulitzer. And he's trying to figure out what to do to get more money. And ultimately, he decides that he is going to up the distribution charges of what the newsies pay for the paper. So not the actual cost of the paper itself, but the cost that the newsies pay for it. And I would say I probably didn't really understand economics when I was a kid and watched this. And I didn't really understand (laughs) what was going on and that it was not the the retail value but it was you know the you know the distribution market rate that the the kids had to pay for it and then resell it later that just didn't click earlier but yeah Yeah. so that's what he's doing he charges it ups ups it from pretty much from half a cent per paper to six tenths of a cent per paper so now we know that the two things you learn from this movie are unions and economics (laughs) unions economics yes the economics of retail (laughs) 
And I love the part where he's like, now, what do the newsies pay now? 50 cents per 100 papers? If you raise it to, uh, what, uh, 60 cents? A mere tenth of a cent per paper. Multiply by 40,000 papers a day. Seven days a week. It definitely adds up, sir. Robert Duvall makes these weird sounds. He, he like does. adds a lot of the <laughs> He does that kind of stuff where it's very eccentric. He's so good at that. Very so eccentric, good. but it works really well. So so we then cut back to the Newsies. They are not happy with the hiked rate. And so they ultimately decide that they're going to go on strike and they're going to unionize. They kind of get inspired to do this because the thing that's going on currently in their world is this big trolley strike. They're watching the trolley. In fact, there's a scene where Jack and David witness like a big fire and a fight that happens from the trolley strike. And I think that's kind of what's supposed to inspire them to actually strike. Yeah, definitely. That's a plot device for their decision. Yeah. So we get the next song because of their their choice, which is The World Will Know. Pull a turn, Hurst. They think we're nothing. Are we nothing? No! They think they got us. Do they got us? No! Even though we ain't got hats or badges, we're a union just by saying so. And the world will know! Which I think is a great song, one of the best in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Again, it uses the world as, you know, no, we will tell just this paper the world, but then also the entire world will know that we're doing this. I Again, I like that double meaning of the word. The song's a lot of fun. It's used basically as the rally call to get everybody together to strike. I think that's the first song that David actually starts singing in and that's what it ends with he's at the end singing it's the rallying call he's he's tying all the newsies together and he kind of has officially joined in he is one of them now so they want to go spread the word through all across new york and here we kind of first get the little inkling of what's so cool about brooklyn people a little scared of brooklyn and they don't want to go there (laughs) but it's a cool spot and whoever this spot conlon is He's a badass. This actually happened. There was actually a newspaper strike, a newsboy strike in 1899, and some of the characters are based on real people. Yeah, Spot Conlon being one of them, Yeah, I believe. The one main one who was made up was Jack Kelly. Mm -hmm. There was no Jack Kelly for real. So then after we kind of learn a little bit about Brooklyn, uh, we meet Bill Pullman, and we just kind of find out that he is a reporter, and he wants to report on their story. So just kind of a little setup there. And so here we get a cut. Going to Brooklyn, we see the Brooklyn Bridge, a cute little scene while they're on it. Uh, And then they head there and you get immediately some Irish music. You get a bunch of kids who don't give a fuck about anything. And their leader is this scrawny little guy who is the person who gives the least fucks about anything, apparently. (laughs) But he's just super cool. And he uses a slingshot and he's a crack shot with it. He's not an intimidating looking guy, but he is an intimidating acting guy for sure. Yeah, he definitely has that presence. Yes. I wouldn't go so far as to call him like a little Napoleon, <laughs> but he has confidence. Mm-hmm. And that's what's scary definitely. is his confidence. Yeah, definitely. You know you both wanted slingshots after that. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but Spot is unsure of Jack and their group's actual devotion to this kind of cause. And so Brooklyn is going to wait basically until everyone else proves worthy that they deserve their help. 
So they're kind of unsuccessful on this trip, but we all see just the intimidating force that is Spot Conlon. So we're going back to the strike and we get the next song, Seize the Day. Another great one, a lot of fun dancing in this one. Yeah. Yeah. Arise and seize the day. Time to seize the day. Now is the time to seize the day. Send out the call and join the fray. Send out the call and join the fray. Wrongs will be righted if we're united. Let us seize the day. And after the song is done, one thing that we see is maybe with all strikes of that day, the newsies use intimidation and violence into getting people to joining their cause. <laughs> They'll smoke them. Yeah, maybe not the best <laughs> morals uh, that this movie teaches, that you can just intimidate people into joining your strike, uh, but that's what happens. <laughs> and ultimately, insanity breaks out, and they start trashing Wiesel's distribution center. They're throwing newspapers everywhere. They're kind of beating people up and going mad. And Crutchy... Poor Crutchy. Poor Crutchy, who I don't know what was going on in the actor's head, but they have that shot where... He is just laughing hysterically while throwing. I thought he lost his fucking mind. Do you, I mean, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's going crazy. He went nuts. And he's just like throwing shit around. He looks like he's absolutely insane. But because he's crutchy and he can't run very fast, he gets caught by the cops. And well, he's, doesn't he get, uh, he's does he get away. caught by the cops or does he get caught by the Delancey brothers? Oh, the Delancey brothers. Yeah. The Delancey, yeah, the Delanceys take him in and then send him off to the cops, basically. Or, to the refuge. Yeah. Yes. So we immediately cut to we want to break out Crutchy. You know, there's really no anticipation or anything waiting for that. It's just like, all right, Crutchy's caught. Okay, let's try and get Crutchy out. <laughs> we see Jack hanging from a rope outside the refuge window. Some fun little scenes of Warden Snyder, who we finally find out who that guy is. He's the warden of the refuge. His name is Snyder. While Jack's kind of hanging, trying to avoid him. It's just some funny moments. But ultimately, Crutchy cannot really leave because he's beaten up too bad. Poor Crutchy. Poor, Poor Crutchy. Crutchy. So cut to, we've got a new day. They couldn't spring Crutchy. They're standing outside the gates of the distribution center. And here we get a shorter version of Seize the Day. Open the gates and seize the day. Don't be afraid and don't delay. Nothing can break us. No one can make us give our rights away. dance scene probably maybe one of the best dance scenes of the movie yeah seize the day is a great song a lot of fun one of the other like classic songs i would say world will know and seize the day are probably the two biggest songs of the movie those are my two favorites yeah and so they open the gates and the newsboys are ready to fight maybe my most quoted line from the entire movie which we have jack kelly who is pissed off and he's ready to fight he says let's soak him for crutches <laughs> <laughs> And right after uh, David tries to calm everyone, mm -hmm, yes, he goes, everyone remain calm. And then you get this nice little brief awkward silence where nobody now knows what to do. And they revert back to what they know. Violence. Which is street violence. <laughs> <laughs> but 
little do the newsies know, Wiesel got gang members to beat up the newsies and try and help with the muscle. Yeah, he got some muscle. Yeah, he got some like old seasoned gang members. They basically beat the crap out of the kids. But boom, in comes Brooklyn to save the day. Brooklyn! Spot Conlin! Yes. I guess he saw enough because they can take a hit and they'll keep standing. So they bring their slingshots and a couple kids with slingshots beat the crap out of some New York Irish bobsters, I guess, or gangsters. Do you think it was odd that nobody had a gun? I mean, it's 1899. It's after the Old West, so we know that we have revolvers and repeaters, yet nobody had a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. They just had chains and clubs and stuff. Which would do massive damage that you don't see at all. Like, swing, hitting somebody with a club in the head, like, it'll fuck you up. Oh, yeah. Um, but not... <laughs> I would know. I've yeah. clubbed many a seal. Uh, <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the kids, with the help of Brooklyn, win the day. Our man Denton, who is Bill Pullman's character, pretty much puts them in the papes to help spread the word. Uh, we kind of then get to the next scene after the fight. We're in a diner. Denton's showing them the paper that he wrote about that whole fight that they just had. We immediately get into the next song, which is King of New York. Look at me. I'm the king of New York. Suddenly, I'm respected. Fun little song about decadence and being famous. That's really all it is. And apparently that song was written at the last second. It was sort of rewritten at the last minute and actually became a favorite of the two writers who wrote most of the songs for the musical. I don't know for sure, but it seems like it was just something like the director needed an extra scene, and so they wrote a song really fast, and that's what came out was The King of New York. It seemed a little random, but it was a good song. Yeah, good little song. At the end of that scene, they all decide that they want to throw a big rally. And that's kind of what we get out of that scene is, all right, we got to go bigger. We got to spread the word more, and so we need to have a rally. We cut to the refuge. And Crutchy is apparently not only slow in his feet, but a little slow in his head. And he definitely <laughs> seems, I mean, all the way through, and it almost explains like the sort of like weird laughing fit that he had when he was mm-hmm. throwing the papers around. He definitely feels like he's not matured. He's a little behind developmentally mm-hmm. in that he's, you know, he might be. He's probably only supposed to be like maybe 14 or 15, maybe. I don't th- I don't think he's quite 18 in the in the movie. But he's, you know, maybe he's really, you know, he might only be eight or nine mentally. And, and he really just sees everything with that childlike wonder. John, that really takes that character into a much darker I spot. I know, it does. <laughs> Not what I was thinking at all. <laughs> he was just very innocent to me. Yeah, I was going to make a joke about him. And they're like, nope, he's mentally disabled. I don't, yep. well, I... It doesn't necessarily mean that he's mentally disabled. It could simply be that he's been stuck in an environment that has kept him at that age. It doesn't necessarily... There's probably something there. In this day and age, he probably would be tested for something and... Uh, I'm not. I didn't mean no. that as a, as a no, joke. I meant no, that no, as no. an educator. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I never. I never thought of the character that way before. I didn't but either. It's possible. It's definitely oh, possible. Because I've always thought of him that way. <laughs> I've never thought of him that way. I, yeah. Okay. I and I. He I just. It, it makes a lot of sense for the way kind of because mm-hmm. he doesn't. He doesn't think. He just kind of 
does. Well, yeah, this, that's what this scene is. He exactly. just he just says he knows Jack, which really kind of spills the beans to Snyder. The warden Snyder then goes to the boarding house to try and get some more information. And it also just kind of adds more mystery behind Jack in general. But yeah, like he kind of spills the beans without even thinking. He just doesn't think at all. So basically then we cut to Jack's back at David's place. Not much of a really necessary scene other than setting up some more love interest between Jack and the sister. Unnecessary besides just that setup. Well, and also he talks because they go up on the roof, you know, and he Mm -hmm. is talking about leaving or going away and it not really mattering to anybody. And well, does it matter to her? And I Mm -hmm. think his just yearning for someone to want him. Yeah. Ties them a little bit closer together that, you know, maybe she understands him or that he wants her to understand him or wants her to want him. And even just someone in general, he doesn't have any family. You know, he wants to be important to somebody. Yeah. And you can see it in that first scene when he has dinner with the family. Mm -hmm. You can almost see he almost admires David more for what he has. Yeah. Like, this is what it's like to have a family. This is what it's like to sit down to dinner and, you know, with your parents and and your siblings and have a meal together. And he's admiring David for having that family. Then after that scene, we cut to Pulitzer, who is kind of teamed up with Warden Snyder. And so now our villains are all kind of getting together and they pull in the mayor trying to get a raid for this upcoming rally. And now we kind of then cut to the rally. We kind of have internal squabbling amongst the newsies and trying to get everybody united on one mentality of what they're doing. Maybe the next most quoted line in this movie from me is something that Spot Conlon says... So what do you say, Spot? I say that what you say is what I say. <laughs> they're all kind of now united and their thoughts cut to Meta again. Meta song <laughs> again sucks. The second song, yeah, the yeah. second Meta song definitely worse mm. than the first. High times, hard times, sometimes they live in this speed. And then Warden Snyder enters and he brings cops and gangsters and the Delancey brothers. Pretty much everybody is coming to the rally to catch Jack. It's all about stopping the rally and catching Jack. You know, you got to wonder how personally does Snyder take it? That Jack escaped, that he's trying to organize this giant raid really just to catch Jack. All he cares about is Jack. And what is it about Jack that makes Snyder so obsessed with him? One thing that they kind of establish is that Snyder is probably even taking kickbacks or some extra money for every kid that he has in the refuge. Oh, gotcha. And so having one of them escape... I think personally pisses him off as well as it like doesn't give him as much money. And so it angers him even more. I think he's very corrupt and that's kind of the personal feeling that he got from it is, well, fuck you. You can't run away from me. I'm the boss of bad kids or whatever. And that's kind of why he takes it so personally. Okay. So they catch Jack. They catch a couple of the other kids, a funny little court scene where the kids are a little bit ignorant and just making fun of stuff and kind of fun. And Denton pops in and he pays for everybody who's caught there, sans Jack, who is in real deep shit, apparently. (laughs) Uh, And so now Jack's turn is up in court and we finally get the real history of Jack, where Warden Snyder tells the judge that 
his mother passed away and his father is in a penitentiary. They're not out in Santa Fe. That was a load of shit. And his actual name is Francis Sullivan. Francis Sullivan. Uh, he did a good choice of changing it because I agree. Yeah, you're not gonna, you're not going to lead a bunch of newsboys into a as strike Francis. as Francis Sullivan. Yeah. <laughs> so Jack was ultimately sentenced back to the House of Refuge. Snyder, you know, gets his thing that he's wanted. We then cut to the diner again, kind of like the meeting place for the boys and Bill Pullman's character because there was a whole collusion with. The newspapers that no one is going to pick up the newsboys rally or their strike anymore that it's basically it's whitewashed from the newspapers and so denton who works for the sun one of the newspapers couldn't get his article published and so he basically was being reassigned and he has to leave the country to go back to war corresponding and he left the article with david at them at the diner and something i didn't get as a kid but I, as i watched it the other day there's a scene kind of during the fight where it cuts back to pulitzer and it's him introducing the mayor to all of the people at this card game that he's assembled mm-hmm. and you know he has hearst there and all the other newspaper magnates and the last one and he says because he's obviously he has to know that the sun is the only one that has covered this so far and he wants to control it he brings in the owner of the sun and he throws it in at the very last second saying and a new addition to our little thing is such and such the owner of the new york sun for some reason as a kid i don't really put it together that that's the paper that denton works for but as soon as you hear it now as an adult i went ah now i understand he's controlling the situation yeah one thing that i passed over completely and i want to bring up was the whole reason pulitzer raises the prices of his newspapers is to try and gain money to beat out hearst but Part of his plan is also having Hearst do the exact same thing. So what the fuck is he getting an advantage on if everybody's doing it together? Like, that makes no sense. I think it's more of his initial plan was to beat out Hearst, but didn't expect that the Newsies would try to unionize and it is hurting his business. And if they're unionizing, it's going to hurt everyone's business. But they said that in the very first scene that one of his sidekicks says, if we do this, Every newsie that we've got will go to Hearst. Yeah. And he says, you don't know Hearst like I know, and he'll raise the prices as well. But, like, the whole point of the plan was to make more money than Hearst. Yeah. So, like, they established that from from that very first scene. So it wasn't because of the strike he has Hearst do it. It's before the strike he has Hearst do it. So I don't – I just didn't get it. It's a flaw. Um, and, and that's why this movie is complete and utter crap and I hate it <gasps> you do not <laughs> no I love this movie it's one of your favorite yeah. movies uh, the one tiny plot hole just killed it for you <laughs> it unraveled everything so we then cut to the kids are deciding they want to try and break out Jack but before they do that he is taken to Pulitzer's house to have a little chit chat with Joe and Jack is basically given an offer by Pulitzer to end his part of the strike and just kind of become a scab and take a lot of money and he'll be taken care of so pretty much all the things that Jack wants to do is appealing to you know him his wanting to get enough money so he can then leave and get out of town but he also kind of threatens his friends in a way doesn't he yes he threatens uh david and les's family by if those kids went to jail how would their family you know think of that and how would they do so 
Yeah. Yeah. So Jack, you know, who's seen firsthand how loving that family is, does not want to cause pain to them. And so on top of that, he basically takes that deal. Well, which we don't know yet, but David then tries to kind of help him escape. But Jack says, no, I'm I'm not. I don't want to escape. And he goes back to the refuge. We don't really know what's going on at that point, but we're just like, okay, that's that's weird. Don't understand. So we are now back at Wiesel's distribution center, back to the strike, and we see that Jack is dressed up in nice clothes and he is a scab and he obviously took the deal that Pulitzer put on as well as the intimidation. So even though we as an audience know he did it probably partly to help protect David, he's also doing it for his own gain to an extent and the other kids don't know that and so they just think he's an asshole scab, period. Yeah. So Jack and Dave have a falling out. We then cut to David's place after that scene where the sister finds Denton's article about the rally. What is that sister's name? Sarah. Sarah. Okay. I forgot she had a name. (laughs) That's how important she is to the story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's not not really needed. And then we see just a quick scene of Jack is basically put up in Wiesel's basement. Just kind of a dingy little spot where he's staying so he's kind of getting getting taken care of and ends up being beneficial very beneficial yes because in the next scene is kind of the turning point for jack well jack's turning point again back to the old jack is it all starts off with uh, the delancey's go to find dave uh, to beat the shit out of david and it's a really creepy scene that i definitely didn't realize that uh, so they're going to beat up david and then the sister sarah goes in to try and like help and the delancey's in my head watching it now there is no question that they were going to rape that girl yeah oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. I did not get that. I didn't get that at all. Like, I probably didn't get that for a long time. As a kid, you didn't? No, no, no. Definitely didn't get that as a kid. I think I did get that as a kid. Or it scared uh, me. That part, that scared me mm-hmm. as a kid, as a, sure. as a female, as a female, it probably, yeah. you know, just hits you a little bit different than it would uh, me. But right. yeah, so I, I yeah. didn't really, but like, just the way that they were holding her and then the way that they were like dragging her. Yeah. So that was going to happen. That's a little dark. Yeah. Yep. So David sees them and he's going to go try and save her, but he gets his ass beaten up pretty good. And then Jack sees it and he can't take it anymore because this is the a family that he does care about. And so he reverts to the old Jack and he goes to beat up the Delanceys and save the day. And he's back on the good side. So yay, Jack. <laughs> now we cut to Denton, who the kids have all kind of read his article now and they want to figure out how they can take it and spread it. And... Basically, he says, well, no one is printing articles about the Newsies right now, so we would have to have our own press. And Jack dun, da, da, da. knows where a press is <laughs> in the basement of uh, where he's staying. So the next song, I would say, for me, has always been one of my favorites. It's got a very good driving beat, and that's uh, Once and For All. This is the story you wanted to write. Well, tonight is a night that you can't. Just get this done, and by dawn's early light, you can finish the fight you began. This time we're in it to stay Think about seizing the day Think of that train as she rolls into old Santa Fe Tell him I'm on my way It's just a fun one. I really, really like Once and For All. Yeah. After that, we kind of see Governor Roosevelt reads the article Denton kind of pushes him to because he knows the guy, Teddy Roosevelt. And the Newsies are just kind of, again, New Day 
waiting to see if they spread the word enough and if anything's going to happen and doesn't look like anything is. And then all of a sudden, basically the entire city comes out in force to sing and dance and join the Newsy strike. <laughs> the original flash mob. Oh, yes. That's where it all started. The Newsies. Uh, we get another little fun line about you know, the double meaning of the world. One of the extra henchmen says, it's like the end of the world. Just, I, I really like those lines. <laughs> I just want to keep pointing them out. <laughs> so David and Jack, they meet with Pulitzer. They won their demands. Yay. Everything wraps up in like a perfect, neat little package. Warden <laughs> Snyder is going to jail. The other refuge kids get out of jail. Yes. You know, yay, Crutchy's free and Crutchy even gets to slam the door. <laughs> the only thing that's happening is Jack wants to go to Santa Fe still. And so he heads out with Teddy Roosevelt, but not too much later. It's kind of like an unnecessary scene, I think. Honestly, they could have just, Jack could have decided to stay then and there, but Teddy Roosevelt apparently convinces him to come back. And so, all right, one minute later, hey, it's Jack again. Uh, He comes back and now we have an even more of a perfect Disney wrap up because Jack wants to stay. He kisses the girl at the end and everything works out perfectly. So for me, I will say this movie obviously held up. I've, I watch this movie once every year or once every couple years. It's a lot of fun. The songs are fantastic. I definitely, you know, rewatching it a little bit older, I, I'm realizing there's some rape. I'm realizing there's some <laughs> real important union and economics talk. I'm yeah. realizing there's some other stuff. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's, it's a movie that for me has a place in my heart that will probably never go away. Yeah, no, it will never, ever go away for me either. I love that movie. I had not watched this movie in probably over a decade Mm -hmm. since when I first watched it a couple nights ago. I was afraid that it wasn't going to hold up. Genuinely enjoyed it this time. I probably enjoyed the songs more than I did as a kid. I probably wasn't a huge musical. Mm -hmm. I don't remember being a huge musical fan. But I really did enjoy the the songs this time around. I enjoyed the characters. And yes, you definitely notice more as an adult, the more depth that went into some of the choices. And I really did enjoy it. And I'll probably watch again and i'll probably show it to my kids i'll probably wait till they're older though yeah i was nine when this movie came out it'll always hold up for me and i loved the songs as a kid and i love the songs even more as an adult (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i forever will feel that it's a fabulous movie and all of my kids will watch it (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely it's a great movie it just uh it makes me want to open the gates and And seize the day Okay, uh, never mind. We're done singing. (laughs) That's bad. Definitely have to say thank you to uh, our sister, Abby, for joining us from all the way across the country. Thanks for inviting me. Anytime. All right, so now we are going to skip about a hundred years into the future in New York and now dissect the show Gargoyles, which ran from 1994 to 1996. I will say, as a kid, this was probably one of my absolute favorite cartoons. You were definitely all about the Gargoyles. I had toys. I was just a massive fan of this show. Yeah, it came out, I was about nine or so eight or nine when it came out and it just it was awesome i was probably past the point where i thought it was probably uncool to be watching cartoons for me because they're 94 i would have been about 13 or 14 and was you know into other stuff i would have been close to being in high school at the time probably eighth grade going into ninth grade pretty soon and uh 
I definitely enjoyed it when I did watch it with you, but I don't think I watched it that often. Yeah, I remember this more so as one of my shows than one of our shows. Yeah, definitely. So it's a show all about gargoyles who are stoned during the day. They are alive at night. They were from medieval times, basically, and there was a curse put on them in the first episode where they would remain stone until the castle rose above the clouds. Go forward a thousand years and a evil entrepreneur guy raises the castle, puts it on top of a skyscraper and they all live again. Which all of this is repeated to us in each episode in the theme song. And I really like that opening. One thousand years ago, superstition and the sword ruled. It was a time of darkness. It was a world of fear. It was the age of gargoyles. Stone by day, warriors by night. We were betrayed by the humans we had sworn to protect, frozen in stone by a magic spell for a thousand years. Now here in Manhattan, the spell is broken and we live again. They kind of get into adventures and kind of solve crimes, protect the city, that kind of thing. So that's kind of like the very basics of the show. The show itself had a fantastic cast. If I give it anything, it had an amazing vocal cast for sure. Keith David's voice as Goliath, to me, it was like the the Optimus Prime kind of, where that voice, who I can't remember who did Optimus Prime's voice, it's just you forever associate it with that character. And for me, mm-hmm. every time, even though Keith David is an incredibly successful actor and has done many things yes. before and after, for me, it's so ingrained that that is Goliath. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, Ed Asner, who is a fantastic actor, Jonathan Frakes, who is in uh, Star Trek. We have multiple Star Trek people play characters in this show, which I think is great. Yeah, I know Brent Spiner plays a character as well. Mm-hmm. A couple others. Marina Sirtis. But yeah, other people who you've had do parts in this show include John Rhys Davies, Clancy Brown, who is a great voice actor, best known as Mr. Crab from SpongeBob. SpongeBob was a little after my time, so I remember Clancy Brown forever as the head of the guard at Shaw shank in shawshank redemption yeah me too that's that's my number one for clancy because that's my favorite movie of all time and he's just an amazing actor yep jim cummings who's a great voice actor is has a part in this one frank welker plays bronx the dog frank welker's famous for doing a lot of you i think you mentioned him before does a lot of animal voices he's been fred and scooby-doo since the beginning of scooby-doo that's right you, you brought him up earlier uh tim curry michael dorn from star trek yep. has, has also been in this before so Yeah, this show has a lot of good things behind it. I thought it has a lot of racial undertones that you deal with in like the first episode in particular, where the humans hated the gargoyles and the gargoyles just wanted to survive and be accepted and there's not acceptance. You know, so there's some adult stuff to it. There's a lot of violence. There's actual killing that Mm -hmm. happens in this in this show. You don't see any blood or anything, but like characters die like in that first episode they kill the vast majority of the gargoyles like they crush them to stone so you don't see any blood or anything but death is something that happens there's a kid's show it's an actiony show but it's one that can kind of 
you know, it's for the older crowd. It's for the teens, really, or, or like the young yeah. teens. It definitely had darker undertones. It was a little bit darker visually, especially because most of the scenes happen at night because the gargoyles don't come out during the day while they're stoned during the day. A lot of times they just cut from one night and then a quick scene of it's the day and then it's back to night again. Like yeah. <laughs> they get they get to night very quickly. Yes. But yeah, we so we didn't really discuss all of the characters who actually we will be casting in the next portion. So the, the characters of gargoyles are Goliath is the leader big strong we have the other gargoyles being hudson who is like the old leader the seasoned veteran basically that's voiced by ed asner brooklyn who is kind of a a generic one of the younger gargoyles lexington who is uh one of the other younger ones who's kind of like the tech nerd and broadway who is kind of like the fat comical relief (laughs) the oaf and bronx who is their dog and then elisa maza is the new york cop who befriends them and xanatos is like the evil lex luther character but with a sweet goatee yeah, complete with the evil goatee and everything. And then Demona, who isn't in as many episodes. Uh, she isn't a super main character, but she is a main villain who reappears quite a bit. Yeah, she's a main antagonist for sure. Yes. And Demona was the love interest for Goliath back in the day. And then she kind of, her storyline kind of gets crazier and crazier as you you know, go further on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the whole point is they kind of protect New York. They're kind of like the big Spider-Man gargoyles of Disney. Well, until Disney bought Marvel. (laughs) And now Spider-Man is the Spider-Man of Disney. Yes, but I think the animation still holds up pretty well. It's not amazing by any means, but the animation's not as strong as the voice acting. I think all of the voices are, are probably the best part. Yeah, I think that it almost doesn't matter if the animation is good or bad. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, the animation is pretty good. It's pretty good in this. But the voice acting and emphasis on acting carry the series. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I almost forgot that it only ran for about two or three seasons. Yeah, it's much shorter than I thought. Like, it being such a powerful show for me, realizing it was only for a couple years was like, oh, wow. That's yeah. really short. But even having gone back to it and revisited and watched a couple episodes, the acting is very powerful, almost to the point where you could almost not watch it. You could just listen to it. And you could really get the this, this sense of, you could almost be like, oh, I'm watching a movie. Or if someone came in and didn't see it, they would think it was uh, you know, a really good movie. I honestly would like to see this show be revamped. And I would like it to see in an hour-long HBO show for adults. <laughs> it's It's got some adult stuff, but if they had the budget to do, like, the actual motion capture for a show, I think this would I would probably enjoy it. Maybe I'd be the only one. I was going to ask, would you want to see it animated again, or would you want to see it live action? I would like to try it live action. Yeah, I would like to try live action, but, I mean, heavy CG motion capture right. for it. You know what? I bet that that would be a great vehicle. Using the Gargoyles IP to tell socially relevant stories now would actually be a very good idea. And they probably could do it live action there, especially if you, like you said, if we do it on HBO, because HBO has the money, they have great success with Game of Thrones. And, you know, they they, they do a really good job with the with the CGI there. Yeah. All the Gargoyles are completely different colors, but they're all acceptance of each other. And then like, but the Gargoyles themselves are separate from humans. And there's all of those, that non-acceptance there and just like the fear of them, but they're mm-hmm. intelligent creatures. But as you said, I think they could go even darker, like an, oh, basically yes. an R-rated. Um, yeah, I would a, like to see that. A couple years ago, there was a really awesome short film of redone of it, basically a short R-rated Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. 
I don't know if you saw that. Mm -mm, did not. It was sort of done outside of the intellectual property. It was kind of done illegally. It was amazing. And I don't even like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. It was never a show I got into. It's still never been a show that I've liked. But it in itself used that medium as a really awesome vehicle for what they were trying to tell. And I think Gargoyles would be a very good medium for the same thing. And I think you're right. An hour-long, 50-minute to an hour-long drama series would be amazing. Yeah, let's that's, hope that happens because I would be jumping right on board. Uh, one thing that stood out watching some of these sh these episodes again was I definitely, how much came back to me about like, you know, it, it was very comic book-esque, this show, where you had like, you know, you had a storyline that went like three or four episodes and then a new storyline that went another three or four episodes and then mm -hmm. a couple overarching stuff. But it was just like a lot of them just would be, you know, in and out of one episode. But there were there were plenty of them that kind of went through multiple episodes and were in a big collective. And it wasn't just like other cartoon shows where you're going to get every single plot line is going to be finished every single time within the 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. The first episode, I think, was actually the first five episodes was actually like a movie that they ended up splitting up into those first five episodes okay. of the entire show. And then they did that kind of somewhat similar thing where a lot of them had multiple parts. Yeah. And so I liked that. I mean, I remember it had it had good villains to it. I remember they kind of get crazier, like Puck, the kind of trickster god Puck mm -hmm. uh, is a villain at one point. I remember they have these other characters that they call themselves Dingo and Jackal. And they kind of have these like robotic uh, and like suit armored suits that kind of are attacking the gargoyles at one point. And then they become bionic people and then they become like full robot-y kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I really did like the different storylines. I really did like the villains. I will say there is a lot of kind of cliche-ish moments just to the series in general that maybe I would say maybe more jumping the shark kind of moments okay. where it's a show that it gets crazier and crazier further on when you watch it. Starts off, yeah, these are magical creatures. And then we get into things like legit magic and sorcery is happening. And then robot suit gargoyles. And yeah. then we get into <laughs> gargoyles who are half gargoyles, half robots. Like something like Deathlock from from Marvel. Right. And then we get into science-made gargoyles to where science people crossbreed cats with bats and put them into human DNA and, be and create science-made gargoyles. And then we get mutants and then we get time travel and then we get evil clones and all of this kind of stuff ends up happening in the show but i kind of enjoyed it at the time and from the shows i ended up watching i probably ended up watching like eight episodes of the show because i still enjoyed it yeah like it it was strong enough and it had enough adult things that i could pull out that i still liked the show you know what i actually enjoyed i probably enjoyed it more now than i probably did as a kid i watched a few episodes and i didn't really watch any kind of in a row i just kind of jumped around to a few episodes i actually really did enjoy it and probably something that probably start over i think maybe something my son would enjoy yeah i bet he would and it's it's one that i think is good to watch from start to finish and not just jump around because yeah. there are a lot of interesting storylines that do kind of build upon each other and things like that. So, but yeah, I really enjoyed the show and I could see myself buying these DVDs or, you know, if it gets onto streaming or maybe once that Disney streaming service happens, maybe I just have to pony up because how much Disney owns right. <laughs> that I want to watch Yeah, that maybe I'd rewatch all of Gargoyles because it was kind of crazy, but a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree.
So with that being said about gargoyles, we'll jump straight into the casting. Like I said, we're going to do all of the main gargoyles and the villain Xanatos and their friend Elisa. So we've got Goliath, Elisa Maza, Hudson, Brooklyn, Broadway, Lexington, Xanatos, and Demoda. This is probably our biggest cast that we've done yet. Yeah. So a lot of different characters. And I'd like to just go ahead and start off with the leader Goliath. All right. Who did you think? Well, I went back and forth on a couple of different things. I want to get into my decision when we talk about a different character. You need someone with a presence. You need someone kind of with that voice. I'm not saying someone who sounds like Keith David, but somebody with a vocal presence. And I ended up going as who I think would be a really good Goliath was Idris Elba. Oh, okay. I like that call. I didn't think of him, but I like that call. He's got the presence. He has that manly voice, which you definitely hear that when he plays. And I, I wish I could remember the name of the character that he plays in Thor, but he basically Heimdall. Yeah, who plays? You know, he plays that kind of the gatekeeper, if you will. Mm-hmm. He's got that big leading man presence, and so I think he would make a fantastic Goliath. Yeah, I think that's a good call. Also kind of a humorous call once I tell you who I chose. (laughs) So I also thought the voice was really important to me in my decision making. And so like I immediately was like, okay, who would have a good deep voice? And then I thought of like Ron Perlman, but he's too old. And then I thought of, you know, if we were just talking voice, Kevin Michael Richardson, who is a great voice actor, Mm -hmm. who's done a lot of deep voices, but... You know, I would need, I want to do mocap and an actor like that. And all of those other, most of the kind of people that I thought of, Dennis Haysbert would be another good one, but also all of them around the exact same age as Keith David. So it'd be like, then just recast Keith David, but that's not what I wanted. That's not what we're trying to do here. I even thought of Mike Coulter, who is Luke Cage, and you put him as B.A. Baracus on the A-Team episode, but he was, I thought they were all very good, but who I went with, someone who actually does have a good voice and you may not realize it. You know, you may not think of it as a good voice, but he's also got the build. I went with Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth. Okay. Idris Elba is a little bit bigger and taller, and that's probably better for it. And so that's why I might actually like your call better than mine. But I, I thought Chris was a, a decent call. That's that's not a bad. I, I would believe that. Uh, we'll then move on to Elisa Maza, who is the New York cop who meets the gargoyles early on and has a very interesting relationship with goliath uh it's it's a very sexual i mean i don't know if you picked up on that but i got there's a lot of sexual tension between the two of them yeah they even kind of address it in the in the show at one point she turns into a gargoyle through magic and Mm -hmm. they can kind of like be together also there's an episode the episode he turns into a human and they can be together it might be the same episode but like yeah there's this whole sexual tension between the two of them which is kind of interesting seemed weird but it's not really weird i guess well it's not like it doesn't have like that howard the duck vibe no, that's that's way weirder. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little bit more awkward, but yeah. it didn't seem to me like it was something that was an instantaneous mm-hmm. sort of sexual tension, and, and it, it seems like something that was probably an admiration mm-hmm. that grew into a friendship that then probably grew into if only he was human or if only I was a gargoyle, yeah, this could work or not. Maybe they just do it anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, in an ideal world, you are who you are, and nobody complains about it. Yes. So, uh, Elisa Maza is someone who is beautiful and well as very strong and intelligent and a cop. And so, someone that I always thought, honestly, I always kind of related this person to Elisa Maza. I probably even, you know, when I was well younger, but 
I went with Rosario Dawson. Oh. I, I know she's already in kind of Marvel with other stuff, but she just always, she's got a strong presence. She can be a badass. Mm-hmm. We've seen it in some of the Marvel shows. Very beautiful, very smart. Like, I think she just kind of, she has a, the look, but also like the character that I think would fit. Yeah, I like that. I actually like that choice. I went back and forth between two people, but I ultimately ended up on uh, someone who co-stars with Rosario Dawson on Marvel's Defenders, and that's Kristen Ritter, who plays Jessica Jones. Yeah, I like that call too. Because, I mean, she kind of has that vibe almost. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the character of, a, is it Elisa or Eliza? Elisa, Elisa. Elisa. The, uh, the character of Elisa is not as much of an asshole as Jessica no. Jones is. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I definitely think she has the look of the character. She's got the mannerisms already because she basically plays a detective. I almost didn't want to put it because mm-hmm. I almost felt like it was typecasting. <laughs> yeah. But uh, she's kind of like a nicer Jessica Jones. And so in the end, I was just like, well, hell, let's just make it Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. Let's just uh, put Kristen Ritter in there. So that was my choice for, for her. Nice. Yeah, I like that call. Let's move on to Hudson, who is like the crotchety old man, but he was like well-respected by the entire team because I think he was the former leader before Goliath even. So I'll go with mine at first. I needed somebody, you know, an, an older actor, someone who would have good presence, who could play, I think, crotchety even and do well. So I thought of some people like Jeff Bridges mm-hmm. or even a Morgan Freeman or Liam Neeson I thought mm-hmm. could be kind of fun. But ultimately, I went with John Goodman. I like, ah. I think he's got a great voice. He's done some comedy kind of stuff if, if they stayed with some of like the younger comedy route of it. Mm-hmm. But he also is a big enough guy that I could see him being a well-respected older gargoyle. <laughs> but he's got a great voice as well. And I think that would fit well into it. Okay. When I first started this off, anytime the subject of gargoyles has ever come up, I only ever think of Keith David because of his voice. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, Keith David's older. Mm. Well, shit. I'm just going to put Keith David as Hudson. Okay, that's interesting. My initial thought was, fuck it. I want Keith David to play Goliath. <laughs> yeah. And I almost <laughs> casted him as Goliath and said, you know what? We'll just we'll fix everything in post. Yeah. When I kind of came across Edgar Albus's name, I decided, you know what? I like him better in that role, mm-hmm. but I still like Keith David. He's an incredible actor. Not only does he have the voice, I think he has the physical presence and the acting chops and probably even the physicality to pull off that role. So I almost as a throwback, but because I also think he could do the part, I went with Keith David for Hudson. Yeah, no, I think that's a good call. I mean, if it, in my absolute best circumstances, I would also want Keith David as Goliath and just say, hell, fix it in post and make him, you know, look like a beast, right. you know, a CG beast then and I'm fine with it because very similar to Kevin Conroy's animated Batman voice, Keith David is Goliath. Yeah. Like that's just that voice just ties into it. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I like I like what you did there. Okay. We'll go on to Brooklyn, who I think is maybe the least dynamic of the Gargoyles. He's the reddish one with like the beak. Goliath kind of promotes him as like his lieutenant. And he's kind of the second in charge, actually. Yeah. Uh, If you watch later on in the series, which I remember, there was a whole episode that they had between Goliath needing to choose between one of the three younger ones as to who would be the next leader. Mm -hmm. And he ultimately goes with Brooklyn. But still, Brooklyn, even though he's like next in line, he's still the least 
dynamic. So I had a little bit of trouble. I was trying to think of some people. Um, I thought of Aaron Taylor Johnson, who played Kick-Ass mm-hmm. and Quicksilver in Marvel. But I think with some of the, the Brooklyn, Lexington, and Broadway, they're all kind of like younger and comical. Yeah. And so I put some comical stuff into them. Yeah. And so I put Justin Long. Okay. I saw Brooklyn as not quite like a comic relief character. Mm-hmm. I think I see I saw Broadway more as the comic relief character. Yeah, yeah. But Brooklyn definitely had that sort of joking manner. And so I ended up going probably in, in the same vein of what you're going. Because it, it had to be somebody who could be serious when they needed to be serious and funny when they needed to be funny. This actor, there's some things that he's in that I just don't particularly care for. But I've seen him do good stuff. Uh, and I went with James Franco for Brooklyn. Okay, yeah. Well, since you mentioned Broadway, let's go ahead and move on to him. He's kind of the larger of the gargoyles, as in is a tubster. Right. <laughs> uh, but and he gets made fun of for it. He's also a little bit of a just, yeah, comical relief. He's just kind of, he was voiced by, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was the assistant coach in the show Coach. Oh, if you know who yes. I'm talking about, the big, tall, blonde guy. Yes. Uh, but that, that was the guy, the actor who voiced him. And so kind of just like, kind of doofusy to an extent. Yeah. That guy has a great voice for it. He also played Marshall's father in uh, How I Met Your Mother. Oh, yes. It, he's He also plays Patrick in SpongeBob. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the exact, very similar kind of thing. Doofusy, large character. Yeah, yes. so it's perfect. So I tried to think of other kind of people who could be doofusy. I thought of someone like Will Sasso from Mad TV, but mm-hmm. he's a little too old i felt i wanted to try and i cast in justin long and so i wanted to stay around that because they're the younger gargoyles and Mm -hmm. will sasso is older and that you know not that that they couldn't make that work but i ended up going with jonah hill okay who's kind of friends with justin long he's kind of like the bigger guy of the group i think he could be a doofusy voice if needed i also thought craig robinson at one point Mm -hmm. but again i went with a little bit more youth and so i went jonah hill Okay. I don't know if I necessarily went with more youth, Mm -hmm. but I went with someone who I thought is funny and has good delivery and good physical attributes that would be kind of important for being able to you know, to maybe do a motion capture or, or however they decided to do this. And I ultimately went with Josh McDermott, who plays uh, Eugene on The Walking Dead. Okay, yeah. I like him as a comedian, as an actor, and he can definitely fit into that kind of big doofus role yeah. and make it something his own at the same time. Yeah. Nice. I like that call. We'll move on to the last of those three younger gargoyles, and that's Lexington, who is kind of like a small, skinny guy who's kind of like the tech genius, mm-hmm. kind of fits in all the cliches. The gargoyles have the big, strong leader, the old crotchety man, the next in charge, the fat doofus, and the <laughs> smart little nerd yeah so now it's the smart little nerd i remember like years ago i thought about who i would want into these roles as well and and i thought if he wasn't dead (laughs) anton yelchin would have been perfect for lexington he's okay got the look yeah but that's not a thing so i ended up going with dane dehan who is in chronicle he's in valerian he was in amazing spider-man 2 as the green goblin slash harry osborne he's kind of a scrawny looking guy but a a solid actor if you can call anyone from amazing spider-man 2 a solid actor (laughs) which i hated that movie i actually never even bothered to see it yeah you, you made the right call so yeah dane dehan 
Okay. I had the hardest time with this one, and I couldn't really quite figure it out. I went with someone who I think would do well in the role. You might find someone better, but I think they would do really well. And it's actually someone I used before for a different movie we've cast. But I I went with it anyway, and I actually went with Tom Holland. Okay. All right. Tom Holland your, is your go-to skinny guy. He's my go-to. Well, and and he can do the physical stuff. Like, he can do the physicality of the getting down and looking shorter than he is. And he can be funny. He's a, and he has very funny stuff in Spider-Man. So, yeah. Um, yeah, for this role, I went with Tom Holland. Okay, that's not bad. So, Demona, who was the love interest and then became a villain, she kind of reminds me of Mystique to an extent. Mm-hmm. From like the, she's like their version of Mystique, as she's sometimes a good person, but she's actually really bad. Mm-hmm. She's complicated and kind of an interesting character. Yeah. I ended up going with a very talented comical actress who does some voice acting. She's beautiful. She's awesome, but I would love to see kind of a little bit more of her like dark side and I think I could get we could get it from here. So I went with Aisha Tyler. Oh, who plays Lana Kane in Archer. She's done a lot of comical stuff, yeah. but I just think I don't know why I think she could she would make it work. Okay. That was kind of an unexpected pick. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like the the sort of out of the box thinking. I went with someone who was a, a little bit more sort of like a conventional almost bombshell type actress but who mm. has done action and who's been in like sort of that dark role and could do something like that and i went with kate beckinsale oh Whew. okay you know from the underworld movies and yeah and various other things total she's recall. Can, she can yes and total recall which everyone terrible terrible remake did you like it i didn't uh, okay i'm not gonna go so far as to say <laughs> i loved it I will say at the end of it, I didn't hate it, Okay. but I had to, when I went into it, I had to mentally divorce myself from the 80s version. Okay. That's a smart call. I went in knowing that it was not going to be the movie I remembered Mm -hmm. and that I needed to take it at, for what it was at face value. When I did that, I didn't hate the movie. Yeah. I will say I probably liked Kate Beckinsale and her character better than I liked that Sharon Stone and her character from the 80s version. Yeah. I think, think they just did a better job with Kate Beckinsale in this one. Okay. So, in the new, recent one. Okay. okay. I, I like that pick. I think Kate Beckinsale is a good call. Uh, so now we get our big bad, the Lex Luthor, Xanatos. Yes. And he is a has to be suave. He has to be good looking. Uh, he has to be intelligent. He has to be a good, you know, someone who has a good business presence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought of a couple different people who have kind of done similar characters before. Someone like Mark Strong or even like Ray Fiennes I thought would be good. So I went with someone who has done kind of the business one before, and I think he could do a really good job, and that is Billy Zane. That's That was my choice. Okay. Yeah, I'd buy that. Surprisingly, Adam, this is the first time where we haven't had the same actor for a role. Well, then who did you go with? I went a little unconventional. Okay. But he's played the business presence before. He can play both the good and the evil, which Xanatos is one of those characters where he is the main bad guy, but he's one of those bad guys where you almost see where he's coming from. And so he can err on, on the good side if he needs to. I went with Peter Dinklage. Oh, I like that call a lot. We kind of see the business side in the X-Men, Days of Future Past. And in that role, he's playing a character that he's doing bad, but he's doing bad for reasons he believes to be good. And and not to say that Xanatos is evil, but Xanatos seems to be doing things for the reasons that are selfish. And it's a little bit different. And so it's not exactly the same thing. Dinklage has the delivery. He has the presence. He has the charisma. I kept going away from it and trying to find someone else and every time i came back to it 
I am going to bow to that call because I like Peter Dinklage uh, better than Billy Zane, honestly. I think Peter Dinklage is a great choice. Someone who just came to me, mm-hmm. but who would also do well, is Mahershala Ali, who played Cottonmouth yes. in the Luke Cage series. Yes. And so I guess I, I guess that, yeah, I would uh, add another Marvel-y person on here, but he was such a good actor in that show. Yes. And he kind of did business. I, I'm, I was, I'm still pissed that they killed him <laughs> off halfway through that, because he was their best villain. Yes. And then they, they supplement him with Diamondback, who was a pathetic villain. Yeah. But he's an actor that, you know, even though I will secede that I think Peter Dinklage is the best choice uh, after hearing it from you, mm-hmm. I will find something else to put uh, Ali in later. But yeah, I like your I like your call a lot. There are so many people in the Marvel world now. I don't think it's going to be possible for us to ignore it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. just going to happen. So the first one that yeah we did not have any any common choices. Yes, any common choices. So. But that's all right. It was bound to happen. Yeah, but good choices as well. I like uh, like both our calls. Honestly, I probably think I like your Goliath with Idris Elba and your Xanatos better than my choices. Okay. But yeah, good stuff. That concludes this episode of the Blast From Our Past podcast. Please join us next time where we review The Land Before Time and the single season show Dino Riders, as well as recast Dino Riders. And please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions or any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like for us to review as part of your childhood, you can reach us at blastfromourpast at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at at blastpastcast. That's at Blast Past Cast on both Facebook and Twitter. So until next time, I'm John. And I'm Adam. And thanks for joining us. See you next time.